So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, second chapter, reading verses 33 through 35. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And may the Lord bless this theologically packed passage of scripture to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive for us. Our dear Heavenly Father, I know that we are going to enter deep waters this morning. I know that this is a very short passage, a very short verses, and especially there in verse 34, but oh, so deep in the significance. What wisdom you gave this elderly man, Simeon, as he holds the Christ child in his arms and looks lovingly at your salvation to humanity. Lord, help us pull out what he's saying. Help us to understand. Let scripture speak to us this morning rather than for us to decide what scripture ought to say. And that we will give you the glory for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Kay and I watched uh, Cecil B. DeMille's uh, Ten Commandments the other night for the umpteenth millionth time. I know that that's a movie that many of you have seen. But I was taken by a particular scene, and I knew we were going to have communion this morning. Uh, and if you've seen the movie, and I know that probably most of you have... Um, there's a part where the Passover, where the, where the angel of death is coming that evening and Joshua goes to Damon's house. Remember, Damon is the, is the evil Hebrew and, and he manipulates, uh, uh, Joshua's love interest, Lilia, into being his wife. Uh, but nonetheless, when it came time for the angel of death to come over, he wasn't going to put any blood on his doorpost, uh, cause he was sold out to Egypt. But, Joshua comes by in the night and he places the blood on the doorpost and lentils of Damon's house. And, and, and as I watched, I, I had one of those moments, you know, where you just kind of go out of space and time. As I watched the blood dripping down that, uh, those doorposts and lentils, I, recogn- I realized what a blessing recognition is. Because we've talked about Simeon holding this child in his arms. And he's the only one in the whole busy temple complex who understands that this is the Christ. He recognizes God's salvation in, in his hands. And, and, and to look at that scene, it was only blood on a door to most people. But to me, it's salvation. To, to me, it's forgiveness and, and atonement and what Jesus is going to accomplish on the cross. Everything we just celebrated by taking communion, that's what that blood on that doorpost and little represents. A great salvation that night for God's people. But there's something else that I realized as I looked at that. That it wasn't salvation for everyone. In fact, that salvation was born out of conflict In fact, that would be a night of horror, a night of terror for all the households in Egypt who did not have that blood on their doorpost. 
All the Egyptians would lose the firstborn of their families. It would be a night of pain and agony and suffering and misery. So here, here's what I want you to see. There, there's, there's God's truth that is in the middle of all this. God's truth comes through Moses to Pharaoh and Moses says, let my people go. That's the truth of God. Now, Moses accepts that as true, and therefore, there's salvation. There's a rising for him. Pharaoh opposes it, rebels against it, says, I will not let the people go. And because of that, there's a falling. There's there's a destruction, a terrible night occurred on that night. Now, that's not the only picture that we get of, of of this um, relationship between the truth of God that comes and those who accept it and those who reject it. A little bit later on, and I'm going to switch from the movie because it kind of deviates from the text of the Bible here. But, well, not that Damon was there either. But nonetheless, when, when Moses, when finally Pharaoh does allow the children of Israel to go and they leave and then they find themselves pinned against the Red Sea. And you know this story well. Pharaoh changes his mind. His heart is hardened and he comes after Moses and the children of Israel with all of his chariots. And that is when one of the greatest images of salvation in the Old Testament occurs. God parts the waters of the Red Sea. And his chosen elected people walk through the waters to their salvation. Walk through the waters to the other side. But that same water was the destruction of Pharaoh's forces. Not too bright. Very courageous, but not too bright. He follows them into the, the, the sea that is parted. And God brought those waters down upon Pharaoh. Later on, the children of Israel, when they get to the other side, will sing a song. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he has thrown into the sea. But here's what I want you to see. The same water, the same water was salvation to the people of God, to those God had given that gift to walk through it and be saved through it, but it was destruction to the enemies of God. Now, my whole point here is that this is stunningly close to what Simeon is saying with the Christ child in his hands. He's looking down upon him and he's saying, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many. It all depends on the state of their soul, the state of their heart, how they're going to respond to the truth of God when it comes. And I'll make that clear when we get down to the 34th verse. But let me kind of set the context here because we are in this discussion. We are making our way through Luke's nativity story, getting close to the end. We have just a couple of more little stories to, 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 to look at. But we are coming to the end of the story of Simeon. And it has been a beautiful story. We spent the first week looking just at Simeon, just at his character in the 25th um, verse of the second chapter, we learn that Simeon is an Old Testament saint. And as an Old Testament saint, he is sort of the model for all who really truly want to follow Christ. He was extraordinary in his, in his belief. He was righteous. He was a devout man. He was faithfully waiting for the coming of the Christ child and he was spirit filled. 
Everything we want to be, we found in Simeon. But then last week, we looked at his song that he sang or recited. And once again, we saw that it was deeply profound. It was as if all of redemptive history is coming to consummation in what he's saying. He looks at the Christ and he sees, here is my salvation. He establishes the relationship with the Lord. And then he opens it up, not just to the Jews, to the Gentiles. But there's two specifics that I want to pull out of the context because they will be extremely important for our discussion this morning. One from the 25th verse, the discussion of his nature, the second from the song. If you remember back when we looked at all those different attributes of Simeon, we noticed that he was a devout man. And we looked at that word devout and what it meant. And it was a word that had its grounding as far as what its meaning was in fear. In fact, in its early stages, it used to mean fear. But in the way that Luke is using it, 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 it speaks of a healthy fear of God. An understanding of who God is as the transcendent creator, omnipotent God of all creation, a God to be worshipped and revered. It revealed his attitude towards God. And, and that was backed up by something that was in his song. Remember when he said, Lord, now you have let your servant uh, depart in peace. Well, the word that he used for Lord wasn't the normal use, the Greek word for Lord, which is kurios, which can be used either of God or of a human being. But this was a word that meant, uh, that meant something else. It was the word despota, from which we get our word despot. Now, without the negative connotation of that, what the word refers to is someone who rules with absolute, unquestionable authority. He is sovereign over all of his dominion. And that's the reason that just a word or so later, Simeon refers to himself as a doulos, a slave. He's the slave of his master. Now, when we Get down to the 34th verse and we get into some difficult doctrinal issues. I want you to remember that this idea of God's sovereignty, unquestionable authority over all of his creation has already been established in the way that Luke has presented um, Simeon to us. So with that said, let's jump into the text looking at the 33rd verse. 33rd verse is kind of, it's not exactly, but it's sort of the end of the song. I left it out last week because we just had way too much text. But here's what it says. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Now, there's a couple of things in this verse that I'm going to push off to the after church. For instance, uh, answering the skeptics who get all upset about the fact that Luke calls Joseph the father of Jesus here. We're going to have to deal with that, but I'm not going to deal with it now. Um, and, and also, the idea of the affirmation, because that's what this is. We are seeing Joseph and Mary continually receive affirmation from God about who their son is. I mean, first of all, the angels appeared to both of them individually. And, and then, of course, uh, when Mary went to see um, her cousin or her relative Elizabeth and she was pregnant with John the Baptist, she was filled with the Holy Spirit and recognized that she held the Lord in her womb immediately. And then, of course, Zechariah's great Benedictus, the song that he sang. The angels come and they tell the shepherds all about the Christ in, unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and they, of course, run directly to Joseph and Mary and tell them what the angel said. 
And then, of course, we hear that everyone who heard that was in wonder. But Mary treasured all these things up in her hearts. Well, you see, God is giving them over and over again affirmation that Jesus is the Christ. Now through Simeon, the same thing later through Anna. We'll look at her next week. Over and over again. And the reason I think for this is that the life of Christ is not going to be what anyone expected. In fact, his own brothers are going to think he's crazy and try to save him from himself. So when the when things get tough, when they get when they look all wrong, when the the, the son of God is hanging on a tree, uh, dying and gasping for his last breath, they need to remember the affirmation that God has given them. And in the after church, I'm going to go back over those with scriptures and 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 show that God is doing the same thing to us, brothers and sisters. He is affirming to us. Who Jesus is so that we don't have a doubt. So when we meet the skeptics out there, we know who he is. Well, anyway, going on to the 34th verse, which is really the meat and potatoes this morning. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother. Now, let's just kind of stop it right there and take those those uh, couple of words. First of all, notice um, that Simeon blessed them. That's kind of odd, isn't it? Bless them. Look down to the 35th verse and tell me if this sounds like a blessing to you. Um, but but I, I think he's blessing them in the way that he blessed God at the beginning of his song. In fact, I think this is kind of a bookend. You know, the Bible does that. They give you little bookends or parentheses around something. So he blessed God in the beginning, and now he's blessing them. Them being Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. So just like we knew God's blessing wasn't a formal blessing, you can't bless God. He's already completely blessed. So he's just reflecting the blessing of God that is, that's been given to him. And so that's what Simeon's doing to the child is, you know, God bless you in the work that he has appointed you to do, which we will see that word poignantly in a moment. But nonetheless, notice that Luke tells us that he addresses himself to Mary and not to Mary and Joseph. Now, that seems a little odd too, doesn't it? But actually not. It's actually quite appropriate. Because even though Simeon doesn't know it, I don't believe that he is aware. He's not cognizant of the future. However, the Holy Spirit, we already have heard that he is being driven and guided and directed and filled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit knows what's going to happen. And in the Gospels, the last time we will hear from Joseph will be at the end of this chapter when Jesus is 12. From then on, the only one we're going to hear from is Mary. In Cana, when Jesus worked his first miracle, the only one there is Mary. Joseph is not to be found. Joseph will not be mentioned again as being present in an event in the rest of the Gospels. Now, he will be mentioned as being the father of Jesus, but that doesn't mean he's alive at the time. And so most scholars are under the impression that somewhere between Jesus' 12th year and his 30th year, Joseph dies, leaving Mary alone. So that's the reason Simeon is addressing himself to Mary, because Mary's the one who's going to go through this shadow now that he's placing over the glorious incarnation we have seen This is the first negative that we're going to see concerning the the direction of the life of Christ. 
Well, after making that beginning, he goes on and says, Behold, now he's talking to Mary specifically. And he says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Now, we're going to have to break that one down. That's a huge, huge statement. First of all, notice the behold. And I've told you before that whenever you see that word behold, it's kind of like put a red line under this, put a little arrow pointing to it. It's not as strong as the truly, truly I say to you that Jesus would say, but it is a designation. You need to pay attention to what we are seeing here. And he goes on and he says, behold, this child is appointed. That's a big word, folks. The word means that he was put in this place at this time for this purpose. In other words, he was predestined to be here. He was foreknown. He was preordained to be in this place at this time for this task. He speaks of the the, the complete foreknowledge of God in the birth of Jesus. Now... Peter makes this very clear to us uh, in his epistle that before the foundations of the world, within the council of the Trinity, it was decided that Jesus would be born at this particular place at this particular time, have this particular meeting with Simeon in this particular part of the temple. Okay, Peter puts it this way. After he's talking about in the opening parts of his uh, epistle, he's talking about the great, marvelous salvation that, that uh, his readers have, far better than that of their fathers and the people who worship silver and gold. And he ends it by saying this. He was, speaking of Jesus, foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world. Later on, in his famous Pentecost sermon, Peter is really going to affirm that when he not only talks about the predestination of the birth of Jesus, but the predestination of the death of Jesus when he says he was foreknown Uh, I'm sorry, this Jesus, he says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. There was the reason Jesus went to the cross was not some mishap. It was because God had ordained it to be so since before the very foundations of the world. Jesus spoke of this often. When he talked about his purpose at the end of his ministry, or at least his public ministry. And um, John, he says, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And he says, Father, glorify your name. And God speaks from heaven and says, I've glorified it and I'm going to glorify it again. When you hang on the cross in misery and angry, accepting the punishment for the sins of the world, I will be glorified. Because that is my providence that has been brought about. So Jesus, in an amazing way, was predestined. Now you need to step back and think about that. Especially if you are, you have a problem with that word. You know, the hair on the back of your neck stands up when you hear the word election or predestination. This is what Dr. Sproul says in his commentary on Luke. He says, you may not like the doctrine of predestination. But if you're going to be biblical, you cannot avoid it. For here we see it in respect to the ministry of our Lord himself. 
In other words, if you are going to follow what Scripture actually says, not reading into it what you want it to say, not picking out a verse and then reciting it over and over again and saying that one trumps the other hundred verses to the opposite. If you're really going to be biblical, you're going to have a hard time dispelling the idea of God's election, of his sovereignty in election. It is in the Old Testament. It is in the New Testament. And that's what we are seeing here is that not only is the Christ elected, not only is he chosen, not only is he predestined to be here, but those that he is going to impact are as well. Which is what Simeon goes on and says next. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Now, before we get into the fall and rising, which is really where we're going to kind of focus our attention, uh, notice that he says for the people of Israel. And uh, Simeon's focus, at least at the time he says this, is like every other Hebrew. It's on Israel. Jesus himself, when he came, his focus was on Israel. I came to save the lost sheep of Israel. But Simeon has just said in his song that that's going to be exponentially expanded because Jesus is also going to be a light to the Gentiles. And so therefore, the principles that we're going to look at here in this fall and rise, I think can be applied not just to the Jews, but to all people and in fact, including us in the day in which we live Well, we need to take each one of those words sort of separately and try to um, understand what they mean. First of all, let's take a look at the word falls. Quite a a colorful word, if you will. It it is a word that actually means the fall of a building. Um, Imagine, if you will, one of the temples that they build. Remember, you know, they don't build them with any mortar. It's just stones on top of each other. And an earthquake comes along and shakes the foundation. And all of a sudden, all the stones fall down. And there's nothing but a bunch of rubble where there once was a building. That's what the word means. That's the basics of the word. That means fall. It can also be used of an entire city that falls that way. Like, for instance, the way that Jericho fell, where God knocked the walls down, turned them into nothing but rubble, and then the whole city is destroyed. It can also be used of a person who's walking along and suddenly drops dead and falls on the ground. And dead before they even hit the ground. Okay? So it is a word that means fall into ruin. Fall into destruction. Now there's no doubt that what Simeon is talking about in the context for both of these words is in the context of salvation. He's just looked upon Jesus and said, my eyes have seen your salvation. So this all has a spiritual connotation. So what he's talking about is those who are going to fall into ultimate ruin, meaning condemnation, damnation, and the destination, of course, is hell. That's what he's talking about. Those who are going to fall, appointed because this child has been appointed for them to fall. Now, Calvin asks a very interesting question here, and I think it's one that needs answering. He said, how how is Jesus going to cause the fallen to fall? Because we're all fallen, brothers and sisters. How how is Jesus, this child that Simeon holds in his arms, how, how is this child going to cause the condemned to be condemned? Well, 
That's a, that's a tough question. We're going to have to delve into Scripture and see that. And it goes back to exactly the same situation I was talking about with Pharaoh and Moses. And the truth of God, let my people go. Some will accept, some will reject. And that's what we're going to see. And we're on the reject side. John, as he often did, he, he talks about things in the context of light and dark spiritually. And this is the way that he spoke of Jesus. You may remember this from our recent study of John back in the prologue. In him, speaking about Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, that's the imagery that we want to see. It is as if in this dark, putrid world, a lightning bolt of the truth of God has bolted down and established itself on earth. Now, the truth of God is presenting itself to everyone who is in that darkness, okay? Now... Elsewhere, and fitting in more with at least the the title of this message, this is referred to as a stone and not light. The light talks about the, the piercing of the darkness. Well, the stone talks about the way that this particular one is going to deal with the nations and the people around him. Amazing stories in Daniel, when we start getting into this, Daniel is, is one of the most amazing prophets that we have. Well, you may remember the great story that starts the book out in the second chapter where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he wants his wise men to interpret the dream. But instead of telling them what the dream was, he wants them to know what the content was as well. And of course, none of them could do it except for Daniel because God revealed um, Nebuchadnezzar's dream to him. And and in that dream, of course, there was that great statue, and the statue was made out of four different kinds of metals, talking about the four kingdoms that are to come, Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, the, the Greek Empire, and finally the Roman Empire. And then, when he gets finished with that, he says, and you also saw a stone cut out of a mountain, but not cut by human hands. And this stone grew. First of all, it crushed the whole statue. And then it grew into a mighty mountain and it filled the whole earth. Well, that's the kingdom of heaven. Daniel puts it this way. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's what this child is being held in Simeon's arm has come to establish. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Now, this is very reflective of what we read in Psalm 2. Where we see that the nations, why do the nations rage? And align themselves against God and his anointed. In other words, brothers and sisters, this has been a recurring theme throughout this entire nativity narrative. When the light pierces the darkness, the darkness fights back. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. We're seeing contention. We're seeing war. We're seeing sides developed over the truth of God. There are going to be some who are going to build their future on the rock of ages. And there are going to be some who are going to be destroyed by that rock. Which is exactly what Isaiah says. I read that to you in the moment in the words. Just to repeat, he will become a sanctuary 
and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare. That's that basics of that word scandalizo that we read so often in the New Testament. The trap, the part of a trap that springs it. And Jesus says this very night, you will be offended at me. You'll be scandalizos at me. They were offended at Christ because he is the stone of offense. Um, Isaiah goes on, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So we recognize what's going to happen, that when the truth, when the stone, when the rock comes, and he represents God's truth, because God's truth is coming into the darkness. There are going to be those, like Pharaoh did, who to their dying breath are going to oppose the truth, oppose God's presence in their midst. And we'll talk about some of the reasoning for that later on. Jesus also picked up on this regularly. The, the, the immediate fight that he had, the immediate darkness that came after him was not the Romans. It wasn't the pagans. It was the religious community of the Hebrews. And Jesus, one very dramatic scene, we read in Luke 20, he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, this is all wrapped up in the fall side of what Simeon is saying. This child is appointed to the fall of many. Many who will see the truth, the rock that God has brought and will fall because of it. Well... Let's go back to that question that I asked you before. How is it possible for the condemned to be condemned by Christ? Well, hopefully that is a little bit more evident to you because when the truth comes into the darkness, the truth says, believe in me and you will be saved. Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That I am the son of the father and the father has a message for you. If you will simply put your faith in the son of of, of, of God in the bread of life and the light of the world. If you will believe in me, you will be saved. And yet, the darkness lashes out against the Lord, does not accept it, fights against it. In other words, we're going to read Peter say this in a brilliant statement. And he's talking to the Sanhedrin, the same people who had just crucified Jesus. And he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. So when the truth comes into the darkness... And the darkness rejects it, throws it back in God's face. Then they are culpable for their own actions and they are condemned. Because it is the gospel, it is the light, it is the path out, it is the salvation, it is the offer of free salvation through believing in Jesus Christ that they have rejected. And that is the only hope of their salvation. And so therefore the condemned condemn themselves. 
Well, the other side of this equation is a rising. He has been appointed for the fall and the rise of many. Also a very colorful word. I, I, I trace this. Um, the, the rise is, a, is the, um, the literal meaning. It, it means to vastly improve your circumstance or your, your situation. Um, but everywhere else that it's used in the Gospels, and I counted them so I know. Every place else that this Greek word is used in the Gospels, it is translated resurrection. In fact, Jesus uses the same word when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. So in a sense here, speaking spiritually again, Simeon is saying that this child has not only been appointed, elected, predestined as the fall, the stumbling stone that many people will stumble over, but he is also the resurrection of many. What he's speaking about is a resurrected heart. He's talking about a transformed heart. He's talking about a born-again heart. He is talking about a regenerated heart. So, in other words, this child is not only coming, he's coming to be the litmus test. He is going to be the bolt. And and people are either going to bat their head against him or they're going to believe in him and be saved. That's what Isaiah says about him in the 60th chapter. Beautiful three verses Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Compare that to what we just read in Daniel, where the kingdoms of the world are going to be crushed by the stone not made by human hands. But also the kingdoms of the world. Those who are, are, are responding. Those who have been resurrected. Those who have risen. They are going to flock to the light. In other words, Jesus put it this way at the end of his ministry. His earthly ministry. I have come into the world as light. So that whoever believes in me. May not remain in darkness. So, going back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh rejected God's truth. And he fell. Moses accepted God's truth. And he rose. Jesus comes. And he is the truth. Those who reject him, will fall. Those who accept him will rise and be resurrected along with him. Now, I think a question that should be asked here, I'm not going to get off too deeply into this. I will address it a little bit more in the after church, answer your questions about it if you have any. But we have to keep this into the context of what we started talking about earlier when Simeon speaks of God as all-powerful despotus, the sovereign one, the one uh, who is unquestionably in dominion over all things. And then the one that um, he was devout to, that he follows, that he has a healthy fear of. 
And then what we have already seen that this God is absolutely sovereign and he himself has been appointed for the fall and rise of many. With that hovering over the discussion that we are having, you simply have to address at least a little bit God's sovereignty in the election of those who will rise and the non-election of those who will fall. Because all of us are in the same boat. We are all fallen creatures. We are all in, in the, the same darkness. None of us deserves to understand or to have the kind of recognition that Simeon has when he looks at this child and says, my eyes have seen your salvation. That's recognition. That is, that is a faith that was given to him. Now, Pharaoh sealed his own fate to a degree. If you remember over and over again, we read there that Pharaoh um, hardened his heart and wouldn't let the people go. But we also read in the same uh, stories that quite often God was the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Um, Exodus 10 puts it like this, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. That Lord, that's Yahweh. Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go. Paul expands on this quite a bit in the ninth chapter of Romans, which I challenge you, if you have a problem with God's predestination and election, um, you need to go and somehow come to grips with chapter 9 of Romans. Because Paul says there, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Paul writing says, so then... He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Who are we to ask God why he does what he does or accuse him of not being um, fair? God does what he wants to. This is his world. He made us. He is the creator. He doesn't share everything with us and explain to us exactly why he does what he does. But as Dr. Sproul said, if you are going to be biblical then you're going to have to deal with the concept of God's will being done. And, and even Jesus, Jesus over and over again, Garden of Gethsemane, not my will be done, but yours. But once again, um, we, we, we speak of this, of his will constantly being done. John put it this way in, in his um, uh, prologue. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now listen to this. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's exactly what the word risen means. That's what resurrected means. It means to be born again by the will of God. God is sovereign in all of this, Peter, I think, puts it quite definitively when he says, so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Don't miss that last phrase. They stumble and fall because they were predestined to do that. 
by a sovereign and an all-powerful God. So you say to yourself, well, that kind of frees me, doesn't it? <laughs> How can I be culpable for my own, uh, my own sins or my rejection of God if, 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 uh, if God is sovereign in not giving me the ability to do so? Well, that's not what Scripture says. Jesus himself says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to the judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. In other words, the gospel, brothers and sisters, the gospel, the light of Jesus Christ, is what condemns those who reject it and saves those who accept it. It is the very pillar, the very dividing line, the litmus test. It is the line between light and dark, infinitely thin, spiritually defined. You either accept the light or you reject it. And if you reject it because it was presented to you, regardless, we are culpable for our sins. So guess what? It appears that Simeon knows something in what he says. That most of evangelical America calls horrific and, and designates those who teach it to be making God into a monster. Well, uh, I, I challenge you. you. You need to deal with what scripture says. Face your, base your opinion not on your presuppositions and not on verses taken out of context. But base your opinion on the counsel of scripture because it's pretty clear God is the one who does this, and that's basically what Simeon is saying here. Well, to finish up that verse, he goes on and he says, and for a sign that is opposed. I mean, he maps out, this is the negative part that he's telling us, this is what's going to happen to Jesus, for a sign that will be opposed. Now, when he says sign here, he's not necessarily talking, well, he's not at all talking about a sign the way that John uses the word, a miracle that points someplace. He's talking about a signpost. And Jesus came as a sign, a signpost of who God is. The writer of Hebrews says he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Talking to Philip, Jesus says, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You take a look at me, you've seen the Father because I'm a pointer, I'm a sign. I point to the Father. Well, this is exactly what was so vehemently, if not viciously, opposed by the religious leaders. When Jesus began to tell them, okay, the kingdom of heaven is upon you. My Father sent me to tell you if you will simply believe in me and put your trust in me. If I am your Savior and your sacrificial atonement paying for your sins. If it is my righteousness that you have, that you stand before God, then you will be saved. Oh my goodness. Did they ever attack him for that? Tenth chapter of John, Jesus has just said, you know, I'm the good shepherd and all of that. And then he says, I and the Father are one. And they pick up stones to stone him. And that's when Jesus says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him and said, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself to be God. But Jesus says, that's who I am. I'm the sign. And that sign, as Simeon now sees as he holds this child, is a sign that will be ferociously, viciously opposed, both in Jesus' day and in ours. 
Well, he goes on, and as I've already pointed out, the, the oddness, if you will, in the 35th verse, the ESV puts it in parentheses, if you're not following along in that particular Bible. And remember, he's talking to Mary, and he says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. I mean, that's just after he said, oh, blessings, you know, God bless you guys. And, oh, by the way, Mary, a sword's going to pierce your soul. And the sword he's talking about is not a dagger, and it's not one of those infighting swords. It's the big battle sword. The big battle sword that if it went into her chest would literally cleave her heart in two. That's the imagery that Simeon is giving Mary. There's pain. There's suffering in your future. Well, I think that suffering started a lot sooner than the crucifixion, the Passion Week. I think it started almost immediately. Once we get to the end of this chapter... We're going to see Jesus actually let his parents leave without him. And he's going to stay in the temple at 12 years old. And, of course, when his parents find out that he's gone, they panic and they come back to Jerusalem. They finally found him. And Mary says, how could you do this to us? How could you not think of us in this way? You remember what Jesus said? Didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? Can you imagine being Joseph when he said that? So there's a distancing that occurs in Jesus long before his crucifixion. Remember the, the going back to that, that miracle at Cana. When Mary, his mother, came to him. Of course, Joseph isn't there. And, and, and she says to, to Jesus, they're, they're out of wine. And you remember what Jesus said to her? Woman, what does that to do with me? Now, that's not as derogatory as it sounds to us in our culture. But it's very formal. No mother, no mama, you know, this woman. What is that to do with me? Later on, of course, she's going to come with the brothers to find Jesus. And they're going to say, hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside. Remember what he said? These are my mother and my brothers, you know, not not my family. So I, I, I think that Mary lost Jesus long before she actually lost him. But I also think it's that passion that Simeon is probably talking to. Can you imagine the pain that she went through? I mean, long ago, she ceased to be a mother to Jesus, I think, and is now a disciple. She's following her own son. And, of course, I think there's family discord because we know that the brothers didn't believe in him until after his resurrection. But that passion week, to watch your son betrayed by one of his closest associates to be taken into custody, the fake trial, the hatred of everyone that you formerly respected and held up, the, the turning over to Pilate, the, the, the beatings, the mockings, the, the lashings to within a, uh, an inch of his life, being forced to carry that cross through town, watching as the people threw insults and spit on him, and then nailed to a cross. We know she was right at the very foot of that cross because John tells us, and watching as your son dies and takes his last breath. I can only imagine that when that soldier Stuck that spear up into his side and into his chest cavity. I wonder if she remembered the words of Simeon here. That that's like a spear in my heart. That's like a sword cleaving my heart. Well, nonetheless, it is quite a shadow. As Simeon, even in the glory of everything we've seen so far, which has truly been glorious, then the shadow of the crucifixion comes as we read about that. One last thing that uh, Simeon says here, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. 
Boy, that kind of says it all. What a great way to end this conversation. So that thoughts of many hearts might be revealed. You see, brothers and sisters, that's why the darkness hates the light. Because it gets exposed. That's why we tend to shy away from the direct, brilliant light of God. Because he sees all of our, all of our missteps and, and, and all of our failures and all of our sinfulness. Well, you see, that's what the darkness does. And of course, John makes this very clear at the end of Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus. When this is said, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Pretty much exactly what Simeon is saying here and not quite the... Um, the, the filled out form. Because when the light comes into the darkness, brothers and sisters, the darkness is exposed and the darkness fights back. And it lashes out against the rock of ages to where he becomes a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. And there's a couple of thoughts that I had that I wanted to share with you here after we have the text behind us, but I'm only going to share one of them just for time's sake and also because it's more focused. Uh, In the after church, we will talk about this whole problem that we have in accepting God's sovereignty in all things in our life. And, and, And we'll talk about what the proper response is instead of accusing God of unfairness to drop to our knees in thanksgiving. Thank God for what he has done for us. But I have a few words to the risen, to the redeemed, to the resurrected. Because I have explained to you a situation that is sometimes confusing and sometimes difficult for people to understand. You know, we, we tend to like to see Jesus as positively good and all good. We, we don't like to see the fact that he is also, not only is he the rock of ages, but he's the stone of stumbling. And when he comes in, it is a condition of people's hearts as to, as, as to how they're going to respond to the truth of God that is in their midst. So what do we do? How do we respond? What kind of life are we supposed to, to live how, what are some pointers as far as dealing with this situation? Well, I, I have four thoughts, real quick ones. Four things that I want to leave you with. First of all, because of the situation that we are in, because the light has come into the darkness, and you, if you are a Christian or an ambassador of light, aligned with the light, and the darkness hates the light and will lash out against it, you need to put on the full armor of God. I'm not going to go into Ephesians 6, but I commit that to your own study this afternoon. You need the armor of God and you need the weaponry of God. Because if you go out into the fray that you are called out to go into and you have no armor and you have no weapons, then you're not going to last very long against the enemy that we face. 
So the very first thing that we need to do, and this is new Christians as as well as old Christians, is we need to inundate ourselves with the word of God, to pour ourselves into our prayer life, to take the sacraments whenever possible, to worship him constantly in the way that he should be worshipped, to plug into our churches, to have a, 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 a relationship and a fellowship with other believers, to engage ourselves in Christian service and Christian benevolence. This is how you put on the armor and remembering that our weaponry is not the weaponry of the world. Our weaponry is the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the love and compassion that he has placed in our hearts. That's our weapon. And we need to go out into the world with that weapon. So the first thing I encourage you, I encourage you, I encourage you, don't go out into the battle until you put on the full armor of God. And the second thing that hugely important and I think is sometimes overlooked, you need compassion for the lost. You need to look upon the lost world the way Jesus did. Jesus looked at the crowds and he had compassion for them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd's. Way too often I hear about from Christians how they despise the world around them and how wicked and how evil it is. Well, keep in mind something, brothers and sisters, that that's you without the rising and resurrection that Jesus or Simeon is talking about here. You are no different from them except for the grace of God. You're not more clever. You're not more righteous. You're not more spiritual. You are just as fallen and depraved as any of them. And if it were not for the grace of God, you would be out there as well. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he looked at the persecutors, the ones who were tormenting and killing him. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I came to save the lost. The sick are the ones who need a physician. When Stephen was being stoned in the gates of Jerusalem, the last things that he said was, Father, don't hold this sin against them. Paul even went so far as to say, if I could, I would give up my salvation so that my brothers and sisters who are Hebrews could come to know Christ. Don't go out there without compassion for the lost because if you don't have it, you're not going to be engaged in the right kind of war. Because it is a war of love and need and compassion to bring those who are in darkness out of the darkness into the light. Third point, armed with those two things. Armed with the armor of God and his weaponry. And a deep and abiding compassion for those who are lost and those who hate you and those who battle against you and those who persecute you to look upon them with broken hearts. Once you are there, then get on out there and do what you were commissioned to do as a Christian and a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Go into the world, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the world. 
That's the commission, brothers and sisters. When Jesus prayed to the Father, he said, Father, I don't ask that you take them out of the world. Just protect them from the evil one. They are in the world, but they are not of the world. The world will hate them. The world will battle against them. I just want you to keep them safe. Keep them on task. But don't take them out of this world because this is where my lost are. This is where the sheep are. Our job is search and rescue. That's what we do. That's the job of the kingdom worship God search the darkness for those he is pulling out of darkness and into his marvelous light number four if you put on the armor of God you love the lost and you take the light of Jesus Christ into the darkness prepare for a fight because you're going to get one Prepare for the fight of your life. Prepare for a fight to someone who doesn't fight fair. Doesn't fight clean. Fights 24-7, 365 and a quarter days a year. Never stops, never will stop trying to destroy you, to tempt you, to make you stumble. Will not stop until he goes into the lake of fire. Be prepared. Because if you go as the torchbearer of the light of Jesus Christ into the darkness, you're going to hit his radar. And when you hit his radar, not only will he attack you, not only will he attack your family and your loved ones and your church, but he will also bring the forces of darkness against you. But fear not, for greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He's not going to win the fight. Jesus wins the fight. He's already won it. And so therefore recognize that these are the four things that we are called to. Yes, it's it's difficult to look at the doctrine and say, Jesus, I don't like to think of you as a stone of stumbling or a rock of offense. Stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. I don't like to look at you that way. But that's what scripture says that he is. So what are we going to do? Sit around and twiddle our thumbs for the rest of time because we don't like a doctrine? No. We are called to be his. We are called to be the ambassadors of light. We are called to be ambassadors of the stone of stumbling. Of course, you're going to get the response that the stone of stumbling would expect. Don't let it sway you. Because he's also the rock of ages. And he is the salvation. The only path to salvation. As he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we struggle with your doctrines. And I know I've really, I really hit them with a, a lot of doctrine this morning. Uh, an awful lot of depth, uh, difficult subjects. But dear Lord, is right out of scripture. This, this is your word and we believe and we trust in your word. We celebrate. Help us not to, to disparage anything that you have ordained. Help us not to question you at all. To take Simeon's stance that you are our despota. We are your doulas. We are slaves. You're our unquestioned Lord and master. We may follow you wherever you lead us. May your will be done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.